As we have a word of prayer, I'd like to read these verses from the 10th chapter of Jeremiah. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Father, we know that you are unique in the universe because you are the creator of the universe. And we are here this morning before you as your creatures who have chosen to bow our knee before you and before our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're here to hear what the Spirit of God would say to us from the Word which you have given to us for our instruction, for our direction, for our encouragement, and for our chastisement. Lord, I ask you to accomplish your perfect will today in our midst, in this church, around the world as your word is proclaimed. This is our Father's world. We pray that the evil one will be bound, that the work of God will go forth, the kingdom of God will advance, that thousands will be added to your kingdom this day, even hundreds of thousands. And Lord, I pray that in our hearts we will continue to have a desire to see those around us know you as we know you and to be reflectors of the glory of Christ into this dark world. Bless our study of this hour in Jesus' name. Amen. You have before you the 11th page of our outline. Uh, we've already moved about halfway through it. Uh, but let me just review it uh, for you. If you have your outline in front of you, we're on... Uh, Roman numeral 11, The Follies of King Saul, and chapters 13 to 15 of 1 Samuel deal specifically with the fact that Saul was chosen to be Israel's first king, and yet it wasn't long after he was anointed that he began to act in ways that were not becoming to the Lord our God. One of the things that was important for Israel at that time, and one of the reasons that they insisted that they have a king, was that they would have a standing army. They were tired of the situation that persisted all through the study of the book of Judges in which there would be an enemy army that would come and they'd have to blow the trumpet and try to gather men from all over Israel and, and try to deal with the incoming invasion. They wanted a standing army, a police force, if you will. And so Saul created that. And we see on the outline there that he created a 3,000-man I mean army, which isn't very large considering the issues that they would have to face. And almost immediately, you remember, as we studied in the 13th chapter, we saw that after the Philistines entered the land, that Saul retreated down to Gilgal, which is down on the, uh, in, the, in the valley near the Dead Sea. And there he was responsible for trying to go ahead and make a sacrifice, which Samuel had ordered that he not do until Samuel arrived. And you remember, that uh, Samuel had to rebuke him. Samuel had to rebuke him, and the consequences were the loss of a dynasty. He would not be able to found a dynasty. And so last week, we were looking at the uh, point C there, Philistine oppression, that the Philistines had a camp encamped very close to where Saul's hometown was at Gibeah, and that we're told raiding parties went out and attacked various parts of Israel there in the central portion. And one of the problems that Israel had was the fact that the Philistines had a monopoly on iron production. There were no blacksmiths in Israel, the scripture told us. So that put them at a distinct disadvantage, not possessing iron weapons 
to deal with an enemy that did possess iron weapons. As I pointed out last time, that's a little, not quite like, but it's sort of like a country that has nothing but bows and arrows and spears and swords trying to go against a country that has guns. It's not a real fair thing if all you have is bronze weapons and you're going against somebody who has iron and steel weapons. So let's look today at 1 Samuel chapter 14 and begin reading at the first verse. Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to the young man who was carrying his armor. Come, let us cross over to the Philistine garrison that is on yonder side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which was at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, <coughs> the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan was gone. Now, whenever you read those long son of son of son of things, you have to understand that in Israel it was very important to be able to define your ancestry. Your lineage was very important. Your lineage needed to be known so that people would realize that you are a literal member of the tribe or of the clan and that you are someone of significance within the society. And so this, of course, is important to us because it takes us back to Eli. And Eli, of course, played a big role in the first part of Samuel, as you remember. And so even though this man, uh, Ahitub, Ahijah, actually, is not going to be a particularly significant person, his, his ancestor Eli was. And between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp crag on one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Boses, and the name of the other was Senna. The one crag rose on the north opposite Michmash, and the other on the south opposite Geba. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. Then both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Behold, Hebrews are coming out of holes where they have hidden themselves. <laughs> and the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we'll show you a thing or two. Then Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor-bearer behind them. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer put some to death after him. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made was about 20 men within about half a furrow in an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it became a great trembling. Jonathan and his armor-bearer left the camp without Saul's knowledge. Remember, Saul is Jonathan's father. Saul is the king. Saul is in command of the army. Jonathan has left with his armor-bearer without telling his father who is the commander of the army. He has simply left in order to go hike about five miles across the landscape from Gibeah over to the pass that separated Gibeah, Geba from Michmash. 
He, the point was to reconnoiter the Philistine position, to see where they were located, how many were there, was there a weak point by which they could be attacked. As they assessed the situation, we discover that Jonathan displays a passion that his father did not have, a passion for defending God's people. He had a desire to defend the name of God's people and the name of God himself. And his faith, of course, sharply contrasted with that of his father Saul. It was a, it was a faith very similar to David. I, I like to think of it as a David-like faith that Jonathan had. Like David when he faced Goliath. If you remember the story uh, of David and Goliath, one of the things that always I am reminded about that is that when, when David saw Goliath out there and Goliath was standing and waving his spear and yelling all kinds of profanities at Israel and saying, you guys are a bunch of wimps, you won't come out and, and fight me. And uh, David was incensed that, that this guy could stand out there and insult the people of God. And he wanted to know what, what's going on? Who's been allowing this guy to do this? And David had a passion to defend the name of God and to defend God's people. And he went out and he fought Goliath. And Jonathan has that same passion here. He looks at this guy, and he, at, at this army, and he says, they are a bunch of uncircumcised, which was a euphemism for, for the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel. And he believed that they could be defeated by two men because he says there at the end of verse 6, the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. And we, we talked on that a little bit last time. God is totally able to accomplish his will with us or without us. And he doesn't need a massive army to defeat the enemies of his people. Humanly speaking, this whole chapter is absurd. Divinely speaking, with God all things are possible. Jonathan here is a great deal like Gideon. He wanted a sign. When God gave Gideon an assignment, Gideon wanted a sign because it seemed a little bit far-fetched to him to fight this massive army that covered the whole valley like grasshoppers with his few little men. And it just didn't seem like a very wise thing to do. And so he wanted a sign from God that this is what he should do. And so Jonathan is seeking for a sign to know what he ought to do in this particular situation. He seemed to be sure that God was going to enable him to win a victory here, but he wasn't sure of the method. What was the method God was going to use? Were they to act defensively? Were they to wait for the Philistines to come down to them and do battle? Or were they to go on the offense? Were they to climb the cliff and challenge the Philistine detachment at the top of the cliff? If the Philistines asked him to come up and challenged him to do so, Jonathan, of course, understood that this would be an expression of Philistine arrogance and their disdain for Israel. And so when they finally said, come on up to us, Jonathan said, that's God's answer. The victory is ours, and we're going up there. And I tried to emphasize as I read the pas passage there that you could, you could just hear the disdain that the um, Philistines had for the Israelites as they looked down there and saw these two guys down at the bottom of the pass and said, huh, the Israelites are crawling out of their holes finally, like a bunch of cockroaches in their eyes. And then, of course, then this, this defiance, come on up to us and we'll show you a thing or two. The Philistines, of course, felt like there was no way these two men could be any harm to them. When Jonathan heard these words, he was absolutely dead certain in his heart that this was God's answer to his seeking for a sign. God said, 
go up. Go up and take them on. Humanly speaking, we are talking about insanity here. I don't know if you've ever, I mean, if you've never been in the Holy Land, it's a rocky place. And you look at one of these passes, and even though one of the passes is called Senna, which means thorn bush, there probably was, a, you know, that kind of illustrates it. <laughs> one thorn bush. <laughs> uh, this, this is not tree covered, this area here. They will be going into the trees later on, but, but, but this is an open area, and they're scrambling up the rocks. And at the, here you have a whole detachment, a platoon of uh, Philistines standing at the top, watching these two guys scrambling up the rocks to them. Humanly speaking, they were committing suicide. This was a suicidal mission and a foolish mission. You, you crawl, and scripture tells us they crawled up on all fours, which meant they had to sling their, their, their sword and, and spear and everything on their backs and their, and their shield and, and try to keep it from hanging up on things as they scrambled up the rocks right into the face of these guys who were standing up there waiting for them with their spears and swords and who knows, maybe bows and arrows as well. Now, if they could have surprised this platoon, if, if they could have been behind the rocks, you know, and waited till the whole detachment was having lunch and then jumped out real quickly and started stabbing people, maybe they could have done something, you know. But just to climb straight up into an awaiting uh, detachment of soldiers, this in-your-face approach would seem totally suicidal. However, what happened next is not done by human strength or by human ingenuity. It is impossible for it to be viewed as any other way than simply a miracle wrought by God. Because not only did Jonathan and his armor bearer crawl safely to the top of the cliff, but we're told that he pulled his sword and he struck a blow, and as soon as he struck a blow, the whole thing, the whole detachment of Philistines fell before him. I'm not saying that one blow and they all fell, but one blow and the first guy fell and the second guy fell and the third guy fell and they kept, you know, he just kept cutting it in his armor bearer, just cut his way right through it. We're told 20 men, 20 men. And we're talking about hand-to-hand -hand combat. We're not talking about somebody who's got an Uzi against somebody else who's got a single shot here. We're talking about guys who are equipped the same on both sides, swords and spears, hand-to-hand, in-your-face combat. And if you're outnumbered 20 to 1, or 10 to 1, there's two of them and 20 of the other guys, roughly, those aren't really good odds. What is described in verse 15 there can only be explained as a work of God. We're told that the whole Philistine garrison shook with fear and that the ground under them quaked. And it wasn't quaking because their knees were knocking. It was quaking because God was working a miracle. And God was quaking the earth there. Now, this detachment, this platoon, was out, they were an outpost from Michmash. Michmash was where the main center of the Philistine force was. There were thousands of Philistines there at Michmash. They'd been sending out from there raid, uh, raiding parties in all directions, and this outpost was just down in the south to kind of keep an eye out towards the direction which the Hebrews were. Not that they thought the Hebrews would do anything anyway, but, but just in case. They didn't want to be surprised. And so now back at Michmash, the whole, the whole army, the whole Philistine army is understanding that there is a greater power at work here than just two guys. Two Israelite warriors cannot rout an army. Only God can rout an army. And it says, there's a reference there to the trembling of the Philistines. And in, verse, in chapter 14, verse 15, the last words of that verse say, 
so that it became a great trembling. The literal Hebrew is that it became a great trembling of God. Not God was trembling. God was causing the trembling there. And we have to understand, Jonathan was not a Samson. He was not born as Samson was born to be used of God to destroy Philistines. Samson's whole life was to be used as an instrument of judgment by God on this, this, this evil people who's, who had committed themselves to the destruction of God's people. Jonathan was simply a man who at this moment was jealous for the honor of God and for God's people. He thought God's thoughts after him. And that's the, the key to success in the Christian life, to think God's thoughts. And the only way we can think God's thoughts is to know God's word, because that's where his thoughts are. He was honored as a defender of God's name. Now, Jonathan was fighting in the flesh, yes. He was swinging a sword. He was punching a spear. He was killing real live Philistines. There was a fleshly encounter here. But he was ultimately involved in spiritual warfare. This was ultimately spiritual warfare. The Philistines were unwitting pawns in the hands of the evil one. They worshipped their own god, Dagon, and they thought Dagon was God. But he, of course, was simply a manifestation of Satan. And they were locked in a spiritual battle that they could not win, and they didn't even know it. The eyes of those who don't know God are blind, so they cannot see. They cannot see the truth. They cannot see what's behind what's going on. Every time we have an encounter which is negative to our lives, there is somehow behind that a spiritual battle going on. Satan is our arch enemy, and he is out to destroy us any way he can. And Jonathan probably didn't understand all his ramifications, but he knew that these were an enemy of God, and he believed in the honor of God, and therefore he was fighting for God, and God was giving him the victory. God honors faith. I think it's important for us to view individuals, to view groups, to view institutions that attack our faith, that attack our belief in the Word, that attack the true church as spiritual Philistines. The A. CLU is a manifestation of spiritual Philistine ideas. Not to say everybody in the ACLU is a, is, is a pawn of Satan, but the kinds of ideas that are reflected in the world that have nothing to do with the work of God, these ideas come from the evil one, and these people are unwitting pawns in the hands of the evil one. Jonathan could not win by human shrewdness, by human strategy, or by human strength, only by the power of God, and that is true of us today. We don't win in this cultural battle, as some people call it today, the, the struggle between the church, the true church, and the world, the flesh, and the devil. We don't win by thinking up a shrewd strategy by which we can kind of make an end run around. We can only win by the power of God. And this is made really clear to us, a passage we've read on several occasions, but let me read it again because I think it bears repetition in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. We read these words, for though we walk in the flesh, and I don't think any of us can deny that today, we are all here in the flesh. We walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And that doesn't mean, you know, some castle up there on a the hill. 
It means the spiritual fortresses, the strongholds of Satan. I, I think it's really important for us to always bear in mind that spiritual warfare is going on all the time around us and including us. It's always happening. Satan, when he's defeated, is only momentarily defeated. He comes back, he takes another tact. He never really just says, ah, I'm out of here, you know, can't stand these guys. He'll come around the corner another way because he is insidiously evil. And he will do everything and anything he can to take us all to be where he is going to be. Yeah, you know, misery loves company is a, is a common human phrase. And, and I think Satan's the epitome of that. He wants all the company he can get because he knows that ultimately he's going to be cast into outer darkness and he wants to take as many with him as he possibly can. Jonathan, of course, did not understand all these things. There was no second Corinthians for Jonathan to read. But Jonathan certainly knew scripture, the, the, the Pentateuch, which had been written at that time. And God's spirit spoke to his heart. And God testified within him and, and used him in this great way. And sometimes God uses us in ways that we don't even understand how, it, how he has done that or why he has done it. But again, it's, it's all based in faith. Our Christian life is successful based on faith. The just shall live by faith. At the end of each of the seven letters that John wrote to the seven churches in Revelation, Jesus describes the reward that's to be given to those who overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let me just read one of the examples there to help us to understand why we should want to become like Jonathan in resisting the world, the flesh, and the devil. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, we read, And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority to rule over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star, meaning the light of Christ forever, will dwell within the life of each believer. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as you read on to the ends of each of those, you know, he, he says to him who overcomes, he will be clothed in white garments and I will, his name will not be erased from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. That's a advocate concept there, a courtroom concept. I will confess your name before the father. Some of you get the Alliance Life magazine. On the back cover of the Alliance Life magazine is a really neat little testimony by a man who was admitted to the bar before the Supreme Court and he makes a comparison how, how it was that he got admitted to the bar before the Supreme Court to how we are admitted before God into heaven because of an advocate and that advocate is Jesus Christ. We overcome by the power of God. We overcome because Christ lives within us. Jonathan overcame by faith and so, was, so must we. I'd like to read in 1 John chapter 5 which kind of further describes who is an overcomer. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, it keeps talking about he who overcomes, he who overcomes. Well, who is an overcomer? In 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, 
we read, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, that doesn't mean just comes to a mental assent and says, oh, well, sure, I, I can believe that Jesus is of God. It means that in the heart we truly believe that Christ is the Son of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him, meaning Christ. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. They're not hard. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Again, faith keeps showing up here. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So the over overcomer is the one who truly believes that Jesus is the Son of God, has received him into his heart by faith. This is the overcomer. This is the one who will receive all these rewards that are described for us in the book of Revelation. Jonathan was an overcomer, not only because he killed 20 Philistines uh, in that initial action, but because he initiated or triggered the complete routing of the Philistines that God did. But Jonathan was his instrument. There are some Christians, and I have heard it from their mouths, who say, God helps those who help themselves. I believe that the true philosophy is that God helps those who can't help themselves. If Jonathan had trusted in his flesh, he said, I'm tough. I know how to use this sword here, and I know how to wield this spear here. I'm going to go right up there, and I'm going to take on those Philistines, and I'm going to slice them and dice them. He could have had that attitude. And he could have gone up there, and he'd have gotten knocked off the cliff by the first Philistine. And his head would have, head would have beat the, his body to the bottom, probably. Jonathan would have been destroyed and never even been able to deliver the first blow because he was at a total disadvantage climbing up the rocks while they're looking down at you, looking, hmm, I can get that guy right on top of the head here. <laughs> you know, I mean, total exposure there. But Jonathan trusted God. God said, go up and take him on. Even though, humanly, this is suicide. In God's strength, it's victory. The Philistines fell before him because Jonathan had faith, not because he knew how to wield a sword, not because he could press more iron than somebody else, but because he had faith. All we have to do is look at the story of Samson. Samson could push more iron than anybody today in the world could. I mean, he could carry a huge door off of off, off a city and carry it four miles away and put it on top of a mountain. I mean, a, a door that pay, weighed tons. And yet, because of his weakness of faith, he was destroyed. Likewise, it's important that we do not trust in the wisdom of this world to fight our battles. The world has all kinds of wisdom to get it, give us. There, there are so many people who feel that you go back and you, you read Aristotle and you read Plato and this gives you a foundation to build your education on. And you can come with all kinds of worldly wisdom. You know, you can listen to the great philosophers behind all of the great uh, areas of, of uh, study today, whoever they might be. But to do so is a forlorn hope. Let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. 
If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless, useless. So then let no one boast in men for all things belong to you whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. We're God's through Christ and in him we have all things. We have the strength, we have the wisdom we need to live each day for God's honor. But if we try to live it by the worldly wisdom, you know, the the, the precepts that come down to us from the, from the ancients who knew nothing about God or even the moderns who are even more arrogant about how much they know and how Christians are such foolish people because they happen to lean on this crutch called God. I'm reminded that many times these who are so outspoken in their attack on God have never been in the foxhole. They've never faced imminent destruction and realized, you know, if you're about ready to go out in eternity, suddenly maybe all of your philosophy about God not existing, what kind of meaning does it have? It has no meaning whatsoever because you don't really know what's on the other side. Death. You don't know that if you die, you're just extinguished, which many philosophers try to tell us. I was thinking yesterday, there was an example in the newspaper. On the front page, there's this guy who teaches out at Shasta College who's in the drama department, and he wants to put on a particular play. And why, does, why is it that he is now accusing the, the administration of Shasta College of censoring him for this particular play? Why, I mean, there are thousands. I mean, how many plays are there out there? <laughs> there are thousands. There are tens of thousands of good plays, right, that could be put on. But he chooses a play that's an in-your-face kind of play for Reading. Might go okay in San Francisco, but... In, in Reading, you know, which is a fairly conservative community. He wants to put on a play which is full of vile language, nudity, all kinds. I mean, these, he's trying to teach kids about drama. You can teach, teach kids about drama without going to extremes. So why is he doing this? What is his real motivation? To teach young people about the basics of drama? Absolutely no way. He wants to challenge the system. He wants to be a big guy, you know. This is worldly wisdom. This is the kind of person who one day will stand before God and, and, and not have a single word to utter. Absolutely dead silence. He will not be able, because God will stand there in all of his glory, and this guy is going to not be able to utter a word in his defense unless he repents. Then Jesus will utter his defense, right? Let me read from Jeremiah chapter 17. I don't have this passage on your outline, but I, I, was, I was just looking at Scripture this morning, and I... I came to this passage and I thought, this is so perfectly illustrative. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man. Notice the contrast now. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. 
for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream will not fear when the heat comes but its leaves will be green it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit the stark contrast between the person whose trust is in God and the person whose trust in the world and living for the world. The one is going to dry up and wither and his life is going to be meaningless and hopeless and, and full of backstabbers. On the other side, you're going to have the flourishing. Oh, it doesn't mean there aren't we trouble and trial. But it says when the desert, when the drought comes, the leaves will still be green, the leaves of faith. This is the strength of God in his people as opposed to the weakness of the arm of flesh. And this is where Jonathan was victorious over the Philistines because he lived by faith, acted by faith. And the Philistines were following the evil one unwittingly, but nevertheless following him, and they would be destroyed. Well, next Sunday, we'll look at the next uh, few verses which tell us what ultimately happened. It's a very, very fascinating story and, and how Saul, in the midst of it all, trying to be religious, does more dumb things.